You can turn over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And I just want to read for us the first uh, six verses, just so we understand where we're at. Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the need to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. We've been in Romans 11 for a couple weeks now. And Paul asks that question in verse 1, and we've gone over this. Has God rejected his people? And he goes on to answer that question by no means, and then he gives us evidence. And basically, the overwhelming evidence is that there is a remnant left behind of God's people. And he gives us evidence of the very fact that God has not rejected his people because there is that remnant. And he gives us evidence for that remnant himself. And the first evidence was God's person, Paul. And in verse 1, he says, For I myself am an Israelite. So Paul's saying, if you're arguing that God has rejected his people... And there's no way they can ever be saved. Well, you're wrong because I'm saved and I'm one of God's children and I'm a Jew. That's what Paul was saying. And so he's saying just the mere fact that he has a relationship with God and God has not rejected him and he is an Israelite proves the fact that God has not rejected all of his people. And then we talked about God's people in verse 2 because he says God has not rejected his people and who composes his people all those who are elect from before the foundation of the world in this context it's referring to those who belong to the nation of israel who are elect who will be saved and so he points that out he says you know what not only is god's person paul evidence that god has not rejected his people but also god's people himself he calls them his people and we went over all that And then we saw the plan that he said in verse 2. He said the reason that you can trust in this is because it's his plan. He foreknew the people whom he foreknew. And we talked about what that meant. It didn't mean that God looked down through the corridors of time and said, Oh, Steve Converse one day is going to accept me, so I'm going to choose him. No. That would be the opposite. That would put us in charge. The Bible says that God, for whatever reason, before the foundation of the world, divinely set his love on those who will be saved. Why did he do that to me? I have the slightest idea. There's nothing good in me. There's no reason for God to save me. There's no reason for God to save you. Other than the mere fact that he decided to do so. 
And so the plan of God will not be thwarted. You know, that's one thing that video spoke of concerning the election. The plan of God will not be thwarted. And so whatever the outcome is, God already knows. So we don't need to be home this weekend worrying and fretting and, you know, oh, I don't, what's going to happen? Oh, the end of the... Hey, you know what? What's going to happen is going to happen. And if our hope and trust is in politicians or, or political things of that nature, <laughs> you don't have a lot of hope and trust. Put your hope and trust in a sovereign God who says, you know what? I raise people up and I'll bring them down. And whatever, whoever wins on Tuesday will be just that. It will be God's purpose. It will be God's plan. Sometimes we don't understand that. But it helps us deal with all that. Because God will bring us through it. And then last week we looked at one of the reasons of uh, this, this evidence was not only God's person, God's people, God's plan, but also God's prophet. And we went back into the kings and we looked at uh, Elijah and how he went up against the, the um, prophets of Baal. And how he had an cr- incredible victory. I mean, he wiped them all out. And then the king's wife kind of went after his head. And he was found kind of in a state of depression, you might say. Thinking, wow, I'm the only one left. There's nobody but me that's going to do what's right in God's eyes. And that's what he says here. Paul writes, he says, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Elijah was a prophet for Israel, and he was pointing to Israel saying, hey, they're doing everything wrong. They're tearing down your altars. They're worshiping other gods. They're doing everything. And you know what? I wiped them out, but now they're coming to kill me. I'm the only one left. Woe is me. We're going to talk a little bit about that a little later on. The loner syndrome. You know, I'm the only one with these problems. Don't believe that. You're not the only one. Matter of fact, there's a lot of people that have problems a lot worse than yours. And so we looked at that whole thing, how how God gave him the divine answer. It says there in verse 4, he says, but what is God's reply to him? In other words, what is God's divine reply? This wasn't something just willy-nilly God just kind of threw out there. No, this was a divine reply reply from the very God creator. He says, I have kept my, for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, please remember, God is not lifting up these 7,000 men saying, yeah, look at how faithful they are. Because that's not why they did not bow the knee to Baal. The only reason they did not bow their knee to Baal, beloved, was because God saw to it that they didn't. <laughs> See? And so don't, you know, sometimes we, we have a victorious, you know, a victory spiritually in our lives and we, we, end up patting ourselves on the back and we're thinking oh i'm doing pretty good no pride cometh before fall right so we need to constantly be relying upon god each and every day remember part of the the people were concerned back in paul's day because all of a sudden these gentiles started coming to christ they started getting saved and what paul is trying to tell us here is that even though a few number of Jewish believers were coming to Christ. Proportionally, it was very small. It was mostly Gentiles who were coming to Christ. 
And that's still the case today. Mostly Gentiles come to the cross. The cross is an affront to most Jewish people. So the proportion of Jewish believers and the proportion of Gentile believers, those are the two groups, basically, there's a small proportion of Jewish believers. There are some who put their faith, their trust in Christ. God opens their eyes, removes the scales. There are some who are believing in the Messiah. But it's important to understand that back in Paul's day, the Jews were scratching their heads saying, wow, what's going on here? All these Gentiles are, quote, getting saved. Does that make any sense? Because a Gentile to a Jew was worse than a dog. I mean, they had no hope at all. And you can see how God brought all this to the Jewish people, and they were disobedient. They took God's word, and they held on to it with white knuckles, and and they used it kind of as a big vat of blessing. And they said, oh, look at what we have. Look at how God has blessed us. And God said, you know what? I don't, I don't want you to have this big tub of blessing. I want you to be a channel through which I can bless other people. And they didn't understand that. And I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of believers today that don't understand that. You know, they come to Christ and God blesses them and they think somehow, oh, look at, look at how I'm living my life. I'm Mr. Holy and God is blessing me because I'm so righteous. Look at those people over there, how bad they are. And they look down their nose, you know, and they kind of, it comes across, you know, if you were only as good as me, you, you would be blessed too. Rather than being a channel of blessing, they're just kind of sucking all the blessings God's given them and, and enjoying them for themselves. And God says, no, you know what? The reason I've saved you, the reason I leave you down there on earth is so that you can be a blessing to others. The first point here in the outline, basically, is that God always has a remnant. God always has a remnant. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 in the Old Testament. Because remember, chapter 11 is mainly about the nation of Israel. But it's also talking about those who were grafted in the nation of Israel through Christ. And so it says here in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, this is Isaiah's vision of the Lord, you might say. It says in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Overwhelming sight. Verse 2, Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips not only that but i dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts then one of the seraphim uh, flew to him having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said behold this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for One reason we celebrate communion is because it's a picture, it's a symbol 
of what Christ did on our behalf. And then look at verse 8, and this is where I want us to, to go with this. He says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? So he's crying out, and Isaiah answers the call. But God has a warning for him. Isaiah says in verse 8 there, You know what? Here I am, send me. Did you ever respond that way? God shows you to do something. Okay, Lord, I'll just do it. See, that's what God desires from us. He doesn't desire us to say, well, wait a minute, you want me to do what? You know, when I explained to my family after I got saved in 1979 that I was in school, I was in university, I was getting a degree in criminology, and I got saved my, my, the, the year there, and, and grad, or, uh, took my associate's degree, I got saved on spring break, and so I decided, you know what, I, the pastor um, said, you know, you should go to Bible college. You'd learn a lot. So I found out there was a college out here in San Diego, and on the cover of the, the thing, they had a picture of La Jolla Cove. And I thought, wow, Christian Heritage College, it's on the beach. I'm going there. I don't even care what they believe. <laughs> I didn't, man. I, I didn't know anything, right? So I took the catalog of the pastor. I said, is this a good school? Oh, Tim LaHaye, yeah, they have the ICR there. Good school, good school. All right, that's where I'm going. I was saved in March. By the middle of May, I was in San Diego. That's how fast God moved. I'd been baptized in a creek in Pennsylvania, snow still on the ground. I remember this. Oh, crazy. You know, but I thought, you know what? I just want to do what the Lord wants me to do. My family thought it was nuts. They, they thought, you, you lost your mind. You're joining a cult. What are you, you know, they weren't converted, some of them. And they thought, wait, you, you're supposed to get a four-year degree, not a two-year degree. Well, I'm opting out of that. I'm just going to do a two-year degree, take a associate's degree in criminology, and I'll get my BA when I go out and get it in biblical studies or something. I don't know. But I knew that God wanted me to go somewhere. Now, rationally, I could have sat down and said, you know, you really don't have a game plan here. You haven't searched out this place. You've never been there. You don't know anything about this place. That could have been my response. But it was like, hey, this is what I'm going to do. This is what Isaiah said here. You know what? Here I am. Send me. Isn't the Christian life a wonderful adventure? You never know. You know, I was just thinking, you know, Sam was going through this. I was sitting at the piano. I'm looking up there at that map and I'm going, wow, we're going to be a long way from home. There's a lot of things that could happen on this trip. We need your prayers. You know, you know, we don't take things like that advantage. Last time we tried to go to Thailand, they had so much civil unrest, they wouldn't, they wouldn't allow it. So, you know, but it's an adventure. It's like, wow, God, what are you going to do on this? This is, this is so cool. And that's, that's where Isaiah is. Hey, send me. And look at verse 9. He says, and he said, go and say to this people, God's people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? In other words, you want me to go tell these people this message, but they're not going to hear it. They're not going to be willing to embrace it. And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitation and horses without or houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though, look at this, 
a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. When you stop and you look at that, the passage that we just read is one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament. It's quoted in Matthew chapter 13. It's quoted in Mark chapter 4. It's quoted in Luke chapter 8. It's quoted in John chapter 12. It's quoted in Acts 28. And what it's trying to do is emphasize the truth that God has judiciously blinded his chosen people who willfully blind themselves to him. And you stop and think about God's people. They were held captive in Babylon. Even during that time, most of them refused to turn to God. But a few did. There was a godly remnant there. People like Daniel, people like Ezekiel, people like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Mordecai, Esther. They remained faithful to the Lord. But most of the nation turned their back on God, even in the midst of trial. They said, no way. Malachi chapter 3 verse 16 assumes that these believers' names were written in the Lord's book of remembrance, it says, in Malachi chapter 3 verse 16. See, when Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ, came to earth, stop and think what happened. The nation of Israel, what did they do? They rejected him. They not only rejected him, they crucified him. They put him on a cross. But you know what? There was a, a godly remnant in Israel even before Jesus was born. People like Zacharias and Elizabeth. People like Mary and Joseph. There was a godly remnant like uh, Simeon and Anna and the shepherds near Bethlehem. What did they do? They received, they worshipped Jesus when he was but an infant. Because they knew the promises of God were true. And then you look at the ministry of Christ. There was a growing number of Jews who turned to the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Some 3,000 believers. Look over at Acts chapter 2. This is exciting stuff, what God is doing here. Acts chapter 2. Pick it up in verse 36. Acts 2, verse 36. It says, let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter and, Peter and the rest of the apostles, uh, they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And then Peter said to him, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off every one whom the Lord our God look calls to himself verse 40 and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying save yourselves from this crooked generation so those who received his word were baptized. And look it. It says there were added that day about what? 3,000. Incredible. 
I heard one pastor, megachurch pastor, justifying his building plans for a megachurch, millions and millions of dollars, and he used that verse saying that, you know, well, they must have built a big church. And, no. Sorry. The Bible says they met in houses. So when it says that they were added that day, 3,000 souls, it's not talking about a church like this. It's talking about the church of Christ, the body of Christ. Just to be clear, that's what it's saying. Verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves, look at this, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. In other words, that was a very high priority in their lives as believers. The apostle teachers the, and their, uh, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And to the breaking of bread and prayer. We have a prayer meeting every morning over in the classroom there before the service, if you're interested. Verse 43 says, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 45. And they were selling their possessions, their belongings, they're distributing the proceeds to all as anyone had need. Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And look at this. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. These were predominantly Jewish people who were coming to Christ. That was his audience. By the time the events were mentioned over in Acts chapter 4, one commentator says there were at least 20,000 Christian Jews in Jerusalem alone who had come to faith in Christ. See, God's doing the same thing today. There's still a remnant of Jewish believers today. There are people, you probably have friends that you know. There may be people in our congregation who used to be Jewish and now they're Christian. They came to Christ. When they come to Christ, it doesn't make them not Jewish. They just fully understand who they are in Christ. So let's look at Romans chapter 11 in verse 5. It says here, so too at the present time, there is a remnant. Stop there at that word present time. Present time. Remember, this is coming after his illustration of who? Elijah, right? So he's going way back. He's saying, remember the old time prophet? Remember Elijah? Well, Paul is saying, you know what? It's, it's still true today. This present time really shows us that God's choice of a believing remnant, it wasn't just some... Anomaly, anomaly that happened, okay, such random thing. But it's actually God's plan. And so what he's pointing out here, uh, uh, James Boyce says this. He says this, this story back in 1 Kings about Elijah does not come from the very last days of the monarchies when destruction by the Assyrians or the Babylonians was just around the corner. In other words, he's saying all this stuff happened with Elijah. It didn't happen at the end when they were having all these problems. It occurred somewhat earlier in Israel's history. But even at the earlier time in their history, it was the case that only a remnant was being saved. 
So what Paul is saying here, he's grounding his experience in the results of preaching the gospel. And he's saying, look, in Jewish history, it's always been that way. There's never been everybody that believed. There's never been a time where everybody was saved in the nation of Israel. And he's saying, you know what? The pattern in the New Testament church fits the same thing. In the first uh, century, the first Christian century, it fits this same pattern. And so he says, you know what? It's the same thing today. Just like it was in the days of Elijah, there wasn't a lot of people believing. It's the same thing today. And so he says this word, these words, present time, that word time is not, not just time in general. It's not chronos, it's kairos. And it refers to the seasons or the joints of chronos, of different times, all put together. Boyce goes on to say, he says, speaking of the critical epic-making periods foreordained of God, when all that has been slowly and often without observation ripening through long ages is mature and comes to birth in grand decisive events which constitute at once the close of one period and the commencement of another. We says the time to which Paul is referencing here was a strategic one, one marked by the inclusion of Gentiles together with the Jews in one body of Christ. At a time which, while the Gentiles gladly received the word, Israel was apostate. Most of Israel didn't believe. A time in which, in spite of Israel's apostasy, there was a remnant of Israel saved by the same sovereign grace of God that saved the Gentiles. And so, God always has a remnant. I think sometimes of Christians who are working in difficult places in the world. You know, even the peninsula here is a difficult place to minister. They call the peninsula the dark corridor. I mean, I've heard statistics, you know, it's less than 2 4% go to any church at all of the whole population on the peninsula. And if you ever go out and try to go door to door, you'll find that out real quick. <laughs> You know, now we don't want it. Every other, you know, every other door is that way almost. And see, there's a lot of people that minister in a lot worse places around the world. You think of, of these people over in Burma. I mean, you know, they're literally putting their life on the line when they enter into ministry. Or behind, you know, communist countries in some places. Or now you have ISIS running around lopping people's heads off if they don't follow them. And so there's always been a time when people have resisted the gospel. And sometimes when we live in this world in which we live and we look at the, the, uh, you know, the, the environment and the society in which we live and they're not really embracing Christianity the last time I checked. They're kind of going the opposite direction. Sometimes we can fall into this same attitude that Elijah has. Well, we're the only one. <laughs> You know, all the church, you know, or even, even within Christian Christianity, sometimes I hear this, you know, well, you know, all the other churches are compromising, but not ours, you know, stop that. You know, there's a lot of good churches out there doing a lot of good works for the Lord. And there's also a lot of churches out there that are playing games. All right. They're not doing what God wants them to do. 
But you know what? You may be inclined to be giving up, thinking, you know, they've killed your prophets, Lord. They've torn down your altars. I'm the only one left. And now they're going to kill me. You know, we need to know that God still has 7,000 who have not bowed to Baal. In other words, there's always a remnant of believers, even within the church, because the church is polluted today. The church, unfortunately, has in it believers and unbelievers. And that's directly a result of a lot of the church growth movement that wanted to be inclusive of the world and bring believers into the body of Christ, even though they weren't part of the body of Christ, and compromise what they did in church so that non-believers would feel welcome and feel, you know, uh, kind of warm and fuzzy, rather than teach them doctrine and, and worship and have a high view of God, a high view of Scripture. Talk about Christ and his sacrifice and sin and the blood of Christ. And I mean, there's churches where they won't even mention that because it's offensive to people. And sometimes we can believe that we're the only ones. Well, no, we're not. Second point there, the remnant is often much larger than we might suspect. See, our problem is, is basically a, simply, a simple lack of faith, which means that we judge by mere outward appearances and not by God's promises. See, Elijah made the same mistake, if you think about it. What was he judging? He was judging, man, this lady's going to kill me, and, you know, I did all this stuff. I had this great victory, but I'm the only one left. He didn't see what God was doing over here. He didn't see the 7,000 men that God said, hey, I I got 7,000 guys that are just like you. You know, you're not the only one left. But he made that same mistake. The loner syndrome. He could not see what God was doing. And so he assumed that he was the only faithful person. Calvin said this. He says, it follows, therefore, that those who evaluate the church on the basis of their own opinions are in error. And indeed, if that distinguished prophet who was so endowed with the light of the Spirit was deceived in this way when he desired to reckon the number of God's people by his own judgment, what will be the case with us? For our highest discernment when compared with his is nothing but dullness. Let us therefore form no rash decision on this point, but rather let this truth remain fixed in our hearts, that the church, which may not appear as anything to our sight, is nourished by the secret providence of God. For God has a way accessible to himself, but concealed from us, by which he wonderfully preserves his elect, even when all seems lost. See, if that does not comfort you, if that does not encourage you as a believer, you know, I don't know what will. I give up. Um, So even though there's not a lot of Jews being saved today, and back in Paul's day it was the same thing, people beyond the Jewish nation are being saved. Gentiles are being saved. And God is being faithful to his promise here. And so he says there in verse 5, So too at the present time, there is a remnant. There is a remnant. That word, verse 5, that word basically says, it means, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a verb uh, form of the noun, mean to, or to, to leave. That's basically what it means, to leave. 
A remnant is that which is left. The word refers here to the group in Israel which was left out of that apostasy. So you had the whole nation in apostasy. They were turning their back on God, on God altogether. But you know what? God says, but part of that nation, there's still faithful people in there. There's a remnant. And the remnant of those who are God's people have not all bowed to Baal. Even though the condition of the general church today is one of dismay. I mean, you know, if you, if you went across this, even this city and, and, and checked out the churches, you'd probably be appalled at what you'd find. But you know what? There's some churches that are still teaching the truth by God's grace. And God will continue to allow that to be so. But when you think of these people not bowing to Baal, Baal was this corrupt God of these Canaanite people. And their worship persisted of the failure of the Jews utterly because they wanted to exterminate the Canaanites at the time of the conquest under Joshua. They failed to do that. And so they just kind of came back. You know, a lot of times, even our own government has a hard time with, how do I say this, Uh, with war. I mean, when you have a people that... um, terrorists, for example, who are dead set on killing you, okay, and the government wants to kind of, well, you know, we don't want to wipe them all out, we want to be gracious, you're asking for problems, and we see that playing out now, you know, now obviously, I think our country and even Israel are are some of the the countries that, that go out of their way to protect Civilians go out of their way to protect the innocence of war. But you know what? Unfortunately, war is, is one of those things where it's devastating. And sometimes innocents are injured. Sometimes innocents are killed. See, back in this time, they were supposed to wipe out the Canaanites. They failed to do it. And so this worship that still existed consisted of this blatant kind of sexual worship that had materialism involved. There was prostitution involved. It was a sick time. And you know what? We have the same stuff going on in our culture today, particularly in America. I mean, we're going down this, you know, four-lane highway of sexual promiscuity And blatant materialism, you know what? We're paying for it now. It's biting us. And see, that's the thing that we we fail to see. Those two are tied together. And that's what Jesus said. You know what? If you're going to love this world, it's going to be tough for you to love me. Matter of fact, it's going to be impossible. The culture is wicked. Virtue is declining. We could very easily conclude, you know what? We're the only ones left. We might just give up. But that's not the true picture. The culture may be rushing down this slippery slope to damnation, but God has his remnant. And this remnant has not bowed its knee to Baal or sexual promiscuity or material wealth. 
They're still devout people who are living for God and trying to do the right thing each and every day. Often in terrible circumstances. And that should encourage us. We should seek those people out. We should encourage them. See, that's what the church is to be. The company of those who are are living for God and encouraging one another to live for Him in this present evil world. And so, verse 5 He says, you know what, even at this present time, there's still a remnant. There's still those people that that I count as faithful. By the way, it's not because of their faithfulness. It's because the next verse, chosen by grace. Chosen by grace. See, the remnant that's left, the faithful people, are not people that that had the willpower and hunkered down and pulled their bootstraps up and said, oh, I'm not going to give in. No. It was the people that God allowed them to be faithful. See, our faithfulness isn't based on us. Our faithfulness is based on the faithfulness of God. So God's promises rest on his sovereign, gracious choice. The remnant exists because of God's gracious choice, not ours. When's the last time you heard that? Do you ever think of this? The only reason you're saved is because God chose you. Well, no, no, I chose God. Well, maybe you did. But you wouldn't have chosen God if God didn't choose you first. That's what the Bible says. You would never have loved God if God hadn't loved you first. It's an impossibility. Why? Because what are we before Christ? What does the Bible call us? Dead in what? Dead in trespass and sin. We're dead. When's the last time you went to a, a funeral and went up to the casket and tried to talk to the person in the casket? And then said, hey, he's not talking back. Why, why, what's going on here? Well, hey, wake up. What's going on? He's dead. They're not going to respond. Why? They don't have the ability to respond. There's no life there. That's what the Bible describes us, is dead in our trespasses excuse me, and sin before we come to Christ. That was Israel's problem. They were dead. And it's only when God awakened some of them that they were part of that remnant. They were chosen by grace. You're not saved because you figured it out and, oh, I, I, I want to come to Christ. I chose Jesus. I, I want to pray this prayer. Well, you, you can do all that you, you want. But unless God has chosen you, you're not saved. That's a hard truth. But that's what the Bible teaches. And so Paul's point here is that for God to reject the people whom he has foreknew, known, whom he has chosen to be saved, it can't happen. Now, as believers, what does that tell us? That we're secure in our salvation, right? If we're saved, it's not because of who we are. It's not because of what we did. We're saved because God says, I'm going to save you. We can trust that God will be faithful to that promise because our salvation rests on his sovereign, gracious choice, not on anything in us. You know, it's really you're looking at grace versus works. 
I talk to some Christians and they say, well, no, you know, I don't believe that. You know, I, I made a choice to come to Jesus. Well, if you made that choice, that's fine. Because God doesn't, we're not robots. But God works with our volition. God works with our desire. And you know what? He brings us to a point in life where that desire to be saved, that desire, that understanding, he takes the blinders off and we realize, you know what? We're utterly lost without a Savior. There's no hope for us anymore. And we come to the Savior and we say, Lord, please save me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I want to turn from my sin and I want to turn to the Savior. That's when he saves you. But it's not that, you know, you're figuring this out. It's that God has given you bits and pieces of the puzzle. He's opening your eyes. He's giving you more truth. And there are some people that hear all the truth. They can, they can muster in God's, and, and they just refuse. Doesn't mean they're not chosen. It just means, you know what? I don't know. Maybe it's not God's time. But see, that's something we have to leave with God, beloved. We never stop praying for them. We never stop reaching out to a lost and dying world. We don't want to get in the, the attitude of, well, if God's got everything figured out, why do anything? Why pray? Why witness? Why? No, that's fatalism. The reason we do those things is because God instructs us to do those things. He commands us to do those things. And if we want to be a good servant, if we want to be a child of God that, that walks in a way that's honoring to him, we will fulfill what he desires us to do. But just remember, the fact that anybody's getting saved is not because of them. It's because of who? It's because of God. I don't know about you, but that, that helps me in my evangelism. That helps me in my Christian walk. I realize when I go out and I share Christ with somebody at the coffee shop or in the grocery store or wherever, you know what? I'm not there to close the deal. I'm there to give them the truth of the gospel. And I'm praying God open their eyes. If God doesn't open their eyes, there's nothing I can do. You don't have to keep on force-feeding them like we do sometimes. It's to the point where they see you coming and they're going, oh, that guy's nuts, man. I get away from him. <laughs> see, what are you doing? You're, you're closing down that, that avenue that you could possibly be a blessing in their life. Don't feel it's up to you. Be prayerful about your witness. If you're going to meet a, a relative that's not a believer, be praying the week before saying, you know what, God, if, if you want us to talk about the gospel again, if, if somehow you're going to open up this individual's eyes, you know what? Let them bring it up. I've prayed that prayer many a time. And you know what? He answers that prayer. And pretty soon I'm sitting around a table with somebody that, that would have been totally offended if I would have started in, you know, with the, the whole uh, gospel presentation. But we start talking about things, and, and the, the conversation goes, and pretty soon, what are they? they? They bring up the gospel. They bring up church. They bring up Christianity. They bring up Christ. And when, when they do that, what do I do? You know, I don't go, oh, here's my green light. Okay, I'm going to force. No. I'll say, well, that's interesting. Why are you asking that question? <laughs> See, I want to know that God is working. I don't want somebody who's just being polite, Right? You want to know when you're giving the truth out, you're giving it to somewhere where, where God is, is opening their eyes. And then what happens? Then they're convicted, and then they realize they need a Savior. You don't have to talk them into it. So the reason that there is a remnant today is, is just because of who God is. Verse 6 says this. 
But it is by grace. We define grace as God's unmerited favor, right? It's God giving us something we don't deserve. If you start thinking you deserve to be saved, you got a problem. You're probably not. But grace is God's unmerited favor. It's what he bestows on us, even though we don't deserve it. The Bible says that even though we were what? Yet sinners, guess what? Christ died for us. I mean, that is so, such a blessing. That, that, you know, God didn't say, okay, Steve, you know, your life's a mess. What are you doing down there? You know, you clean yourself up and then I'll talk to you. Go take a bath. Go take a shower. Clean yourself up. Figure out what's going on in your life. And then, you know, I'll be here for you. But, you know, you do that first. And then, no, the the Bible says that's not how it works. The Bible says that even though we were kind of steeped in our sin, we're stuck in our sin, Christ died for us. Why? Because he loved us. He wants us to come to him. He wants us to give up all our own desires, all our own priorities, and lay them at the foot of the cross. And say, you know what, Jesus, I don't have anywhere else to go. My life's a mess. I don't know how it got this way, but probably poor choices, probably whatever. But, you know, I'm sure you understand all that anyway. I just want want things to be right. I want to have a relationship with my creator. And I don't want it based on what I do, because if it's based on what I do, I can probably undo it. That's why Jesus went went to the cross. He died in our place. Even though we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So verse 6 says, If we're chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Why does Paul say that? Why does Paul say, well, it's... Okay, if grace is unmerited favor, why is this works thing coming up? The reason he's bringing it up is because that's what Israel believed. Their righteousness was steeped in their good works. They had all these rules and regulations, all this stuff that they were supposed to be doing. And if they did everything just right, God would love them. God would bless them. And so Paul was saying, listen, you're not saved by your works. And what he means there when he says it is no longer on the basis of works. You know, I remember as a young believer thinking, well, in the Old Testament, they must have got saved by doing, keeping the law. That's what I thought. And now Christ died. So we live in the age of grace. So we don't have to keep the law. We, we're just saved by grace. But that's not right. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says, you know what, in the Old Testament, they were saved the same way we were saved. They were saved by faith, by grace through faith. It's not on the basis of works. Works will not save you. You cannot be good enough for God to save you. Do you know why? Because you're dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sin. And once you understand that, that you know what? I am dead. I I can't help myself if I wanted to. Where does that drive you to? It pushes you to the cross. And you begin to realize in your heart that, you know what? I need to do something about this. 
Because God keeps on convicting me and I keep on trying to do all this good stuff. But you know what? It's not on the basis of works that somebody's saved. God gives us the faith. And it's through his unmerited favor that he does so. Grace. And so he says there, if it be by grace, stop this work stuff. Just stop it. Now, are we saying that in the life of a believer, there shouldn't be good works? No, we're not saying that. The Bible says that God has prepared beforehand good works for us to do in Christ. See, we have to change our mentality. The reason we do good works as Christians, the reason we reach out and we, we love and we pray and we, we, we evangelize and we, we feed the homeless and we do all kinds of different things. It's not to gain our salvation, but it's because, you know what? We understand what Christ has done for us. He went to the cross. He died. He gave up everything in heaven to come down here to restrict himself to a human body for 33 years. Now, if you're God and you restrict yourself to a human body, I mean, just wrap your mind around that. And yet he was without sin. I mean, it's an incredible feet and then to go and to go through everything that he went through the passion of the christ leading up to the cross he was beaten he was spit upon they mocked him even his own disciples didn't really get it he tried to explain to him over and over hey i gotta go die well what are you talking about jesus and so after he died they got all discouraged they left at any time he could have chosen to do whatever he wants he's god but you know what he he didn't do that he submitted himself to the father's will and he realized you know what i need to die for these people and so he did and on the third day the bible says that god raised him from the dead as a testimony that christ's sacrifice his sinless perfect sacrifice for us the church was satisfactory before a holy God. And God said, you know what? You did good, son. Come on out of the grave. That's exactly what he did. And he came out victorious over what? Sin and death. And now we as believers allow, have the opportunity, have the blessing of being in Christ. Which means, you know what? We have the same privileges as Christ. We have the same position as Christ. We are, as believers, victorious over sin and death. Yeah, this body's going to die. I mean, I can't wait. Because my soul's going right to heaven and I'll never die again. All right? No more weight issues. No more memory issues. No more bones that are creaking. And, you know, you're going to be in the presence of your Lord and Savior with a resurrection body. The likes of what you've never seen. And that's where our hearts and our minds have to be, beloved. Don't let this world suck you in and get so focused on the priorities down here that you lose the focus that the New Testament church had. That their priority was what? The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the coming together for prayer. You know what? We're all busy. We can all come up with a million reasons why, not to, why, not, why we are not here when these doors are open. But you know what? That's not the priority God wants us to have. So yes, sometimes it's going to have to sacrifice our own will. Maybe sometimes we're going to want to do something. And and you know what? It it interferes. 
And we're going to have to say, you know what, I'm going to die to that. I'm going to do what the Lord wants me to do. And God will bless you as a result of that. I want to close here with four dangerous responses quickly, and then we'll have communion. To the grace of God. Four dangerous responses to the grace of God. Because it's God's favor, it's God's grace that he's reaching out. He's trying to give you this gift. First one is rejection. See, there's, there's no other sacrifice to be made. Christ already made it. It's a once-for-all sacrifice. Romans 10.29 says that. And it's really, if you reject that sacrifice, if you reject what Christ has done for you, it's an insult to the spirit of grace. You know, you're not going to receive grace if you reject this sacrifice that Christ gave you. One day you will receive judgment, and you will receive and experience the full wrath of God. Secondly, refusing to repent in Hebrews 12 is described as coming short of the grace of God. See, God gifts you with repentance. You know, sometimes as Christians, we say, well, you just need to repent. Well, the Bible says that God grants us repentance. We can't even do that. I mean, you know, you can't just change your mind on something. That's what it means. Repentance means a change of direction, a change of mind. So it's not like you're just going on in life and your sinful self, and all of a sudden you wake up one morning and you go, I think I'll repent. I think I'll change my mind about God. I think I'll just run back to God and the cross and live my life for him. That's not going to happen unless God works. And see, refusing to do that is really spurning the grace of God. And then the third thing there, resisting God's standards of sexual purity. In Jude 4, it's called turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. In other words, you know what? As believers, God has given us a certain grace to live in a way that is pure, that is, that is righteous, that is um, in Christ, it's holy. And when we resist that, when we say, well, you know, I know, but I'm going to go do this anyway, even though God's word says no. You're making excuses. Or the third thing, or the fourth thing, they're returning to the law to be declared righteous is called frustrating the grace of God. Galatians 2.21, you can look those up on your own. But you know, as Christians, some Christians become very legalistic. And all of a sudden, they have these little rules that they got to follow and this and that. And that's not what Christ has called us to. That's not what Christ has called us to. Should we choose to live a holy life? Should we be pure and, and uh, un, unblameable by the world? Yeah, definitely. Because grace is not to be used as something where it's an excuse for sin. Well, everything's under the grace of God. Let's just go sin it up. We talked about that earlier in Romans. Paul says, no, don't do that. You don't want to test God that way. That's not the right way to do it. And see, just as God worked through a remnant, he sovereignly preserved that remnant to this day. Today, he still does the same. He chooses those whom he saves, and he preserves them for his purpose. Just remember that salvation is by grace alone, through Christ alone. All right? And and we need to be kind of reminded that, you know what, as a Christian, we should have a healthy understanding of our own personal sin and our unworthiness before a holy God. And we should also be aware that, you know what, God's grace gives us the ability to go on and live each day in a way that is honoring to him. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I'm reminded there in Hebrews chapter 12 where it tells us that we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses that we should lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely 
And let us run with endurance, endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Lord, we pray that you would work and move in our hearts as we come to this communion time. Father, we're eternally grateful for the sacrifice that your son made. And Lord, we pray that you would just allow us to consider our own hearts during this time. Father, the Bible says that we should examine ourselves. Lord, if there's something that's not right as believers in our heart, even now, you have allowed a way for us to make it right. We confess that sin. We say the same thing about that sin that you would say, and we claim your forgiveness. You've already forgiven it. But Lord, you want us to acknowledge that we were wrong. Maybe it was a ill thought or an ill word spoken. Whatever it might be, I pray that each believer here this morning would consider your forgiveness for that sin and turn from it and thank you for your forgiveness and confess it so that they might come to this table with a pure heart. And this table is just for that. It's for those who have put their faith or trust in Christ. This isn't a means of grace by taking communion. This, this cracker and this juice that you drink and eat doesn't give you any better standing before God. It's just a symbol. It's a symbol of someone who understands their relationship with their creator, God, through Christ, that they've been forgiven, that they're a Christian, that they're born again, that they're transformed. And so we ask that those who partake of this communion here are are those who put their faith and trust in Christ. And if you haven't done that yet, that's okay. Just pass the elements along as, as the men pass them out. And, and that's the way to handle that. And so, Father, we just thank you for this time. Pray that it would be honoring to you. Um, we pray for those who may not know you. And we pray that you would do that work of grace and mercy in their heart, that you would draw them to the Savior in a way that they couldn't resist anymore. That irresistible grace that just keeps on tugging at their heart. They finally realized, you know what? I need to give this up. And that you would just gloriously convert them, save them, transform them. Change their heart, their mind into the person that you desire them to be. You can do that even now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.